If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Galatians. We're going to go through the book of Galatians. And what I did was I gave you guys um, an outline so that you can follow along. Um, in preparation at the Bible College, teaching through the book of Galatians, I had uh, gotten a hold of three, four different books. I got uh, J. Vernon McGee's commentary on the book of Galatians. I've got uh, David Guzik, who is a pastor at Calvary Chapel in Santa Barbara, I believe, um, I got, uh, let's see, Warren Wearsby, his commentary on the B-series for the book of Galatians, and I got uh, one more, the preacher's commentary, which is very application-oriented, in addition to just uh, all the other uh, books that I've already had, but those are the ones that I had picked up. And through that, I was just able to write a, um, a neat little outline for... Uh, just this chapter, and as we're going through it, again, I, I just have it so that you guys can follow along with me, and uh, you'll see where we're headed. The title of our message is The Riches of His Grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time that we have, and uh, Lord, I pray that if there are any spiritual paupers present, those who don't understand what we have in Christ as Christians, Lord, I pray that you would reveal that to them, this year's Lord. We would come to a place where we understand, Lord, that we are rich. And what your death and resurrection secured for us as Christians. And so open up our ears, open up our hearts to receive what you have for us this morning. In Jesus' name and all of God's people said, amen. amen. All right, so if you were to outline the, the book of Galatians, this little letter, this epistle... It would break down into three main sections. Chapter 1 and 2 would be the first section, and that's personal section that Paul's writing to them, and that's grace and the gospel. And that covers chapters 1 and 2. The second section would be the doctrinal section, and we finished that last week. And that's chapters 3 and 4, and that would be grace and the law. And then this third section, this final section that we're starting today is the practical section of the epistle and that's grace and the Christian life. If you were to break this third section down into four parts, we're going to look at the first part today. It's liberty and not bondage. And that's verses 1 through 12 in chapter 5. The second part we'll hit next week. It's the spirit, not the flesh. And that's where you have the fruit of the spirit in contrast to the uh, work of the flesh and, and all of those sins that can come out if we let our flesh lead us. And that will be uh, verses 13 through 26 of chapter 5. The third section is others, not self. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And the final section will be living for God's glory and not man's praise. And that's chapter 6, the last part, verses 11 through 18. So we now go from argument to application, from doctrinal to practical. And this is what I love about the Bible I love studying the Bible, I love reading the Bible, I love getting information, information and gaining knowledge, but more importantly, I love learning what do I do, what I do with this information, how do I live my life in light of this information, and that's what we're hitting on now. So we're in the last section of this epistle, and it's very practical. And a question came to my mind as I'm studying this, and the question is, Will the Christian living by faith in the grace of God rebel and fall into sin? And here's the reason why I ask this question. 
We have a tendency to think that if we let people know that Christians are saved by grace through faith, and it's all a work of God, that God is doing a work from the inside out, and we do not set up rules, and we do not set up regulations, and we do not set up rituals, and we do not set up all of these standards that they're going to rebel and they're going to fall away from God. And yet the Bible teaches something entirely different. The Bible teaches that God is doing a work from the inside out, that God is the one that is doing it from beginning to middle to end, and that if we just simply bask in this thing that God has for us of his love and his goodness and his grace, and we maintain a contact and a communion with God, then he's going to complete the work that he's begun. He's going to continue to do what he's begun to do. So the Christian who lives by faith is going to experience the inner discipline of God that is far better than outer discipline of man-made rules. No man or woman can become a rebel who depends on God's grace, yields to God's spirit, lives for others, and seeks to glorify God. And that's the four sections that we're going to see broken down in these last two chapters. In contrast, the legalist is the one who eventually rebels because he is living in bondage, depending on the flesh, living for self, and seeking the praise of men and not the glory of God. So legalism attempts to do the impossible, change the old nature, and make it obey the laws of God. Legalism appears to succeed for a short time, and then the flesh begins to rebel. I've seen this firsthand Uh, I have a friend who the Lord called him to Provo, Utah. If you know anything about Provo, Utah, you know that it is the highest concentration of Mormons than any other city in the world, Provo, Utah. And so Provo, Utah is given to this guy in a vision, and he goes and heads out to Provo, Utah. My friend, Steve Pearson. And so he goes, and every once in a while when I see him, I get to talk to him and ask him how things are going and what's going on. Well, check out what God has established in his life. God allowed this guy to go to two universities and to be able to sit within their religious classes, BYU, Brigham Young University, and the University of Utah. So he sits as the Christian representatives at BYU, Brigham Young University, which is a Mormon university. He sits in their religious class, and he represents the Christian side of the argument. And so as students have questions or as the instructor has questions, they go to the Christian response. What would a Christian say about this? What would an uh, uh, evangelical Christian uh, have to say about this? And he gets to be able to share. And so as I'm talking to him, he says he comes back with one thing that he sees very well. He says... The, the youth and th- those who are in their 20s, they're sick of religion. They're tired of religion. They see hypocrisy in religion. They see the adults putting a front and a facade of everything looks good and everything is okay, but inside they're bankrupt. Inside there's death. Inside they can't do what the tenets of Mormonism teaches in their own strength, in their own power. And so he has this incredible vantage point to be able to share the truth of the love of Christ and how Jesus has done it for us. And so, again, 
This is what legalism does. And legalism is not only outside in the cults, but legalism takes place within the church as well. The surrendered Christian who depends on the power of the Spirit is not denying the law of God or rebelling against it. Rather, that law is being fulfilled in him through the Spirit. Let me read you a succinct section of Scripture that capsulizes, capsulizes, capsules, encapsulates. Yeah, I don't really know how to speak. But (laughs) Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4, the Bible says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death, For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so that little section of scripture, Romans 8 verses 1 through 4, it succinctly says what God has done. He's abolished the law. He's fulfilled it. He's completed it by obeying it perfectly. And then we take on that perfect fulfillment to the law as we trust in Christ, as we believe in the sacrifice that he made on our behalf. So the sequence of thoughts in these closing chapters are four. Number one, I have been set free by Christ. I am no longer under bondage to the law. And we're going to see that today. That's verses 1 through 12. Number two, but I need something, someone to control my life from within. That someone is the Holy Spirit. We'll see that next week. Chapter 5, verses 13 through 26. Number three, through the Spirit's love, I have a desire to live for others, not self. The law isn't able to have us do as much as love has this ability to get us to do. We will do more for love than we will, than we will any rules and set of regulations. And we'll see that in chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And then finally, number 4 in this section, this life of liberty is so wonderful, I want to live it to the glory of God, for He is the one making it possible And again, we'll see that in chapter 6, verses 11 through 18. Now, contrast this with the experience of the person who chooses to live under the law, under the discipline of some religious leaders. And this is what we see in religion. And this is what we see, unfortunately, in many Christian churches. They place themselves under a leader, a charismatic leader, and all of a sudden they're living for the things that that leader says. Even though they're true, there's a twist and a slant on it because they're not living for the glory of God. They're not compelled by the love of Christ. Again, that will cause you to do way more than any set of rules, regulations, or rituals will have you do. And so number one, if I obey these rules, I will become a more spiritual person. I am a great admirer of this religious leader, so I now submit myself to his system. Number two, I believe I have the strength to obey and improve myself. I do what I am told and measure up to the standard set for me. Number three, I'm making progress. I don't do some of the things I used to do. Other people compliment me on my obedience and discipline. I can see that I am better than others in my fellowship. How wonderful to be so spiritual. Here's where the danger begins. Because now we're starting to compare ourselves to one another. And that's what Pharisees do. 
Remember the Pharisee standing afar off, or the sinner standing afar off, but the, sin, the Pharisee comes up in Jesus, and, and he's like, God, I thank you that I'm not like this sinner. There's a point of comparison, and that's what Pharisees do. Number four, if only others were like me, God is certainly fortunate that I am his. I have a desire to share this with others so they can be as I am. Our group is growing, and we have a fine reputation. Too bad other groups are not as spiritual as we are. And there's a danger there. When you abandon grace for law, you always lose. So let's take a look at it. We're going to break this little section down. It's a short Bible study, but all of my Bible studies are short. They just go long because I don't know when to stop. Galatians chapter 5, starting at verse 1. Galatians 5.1 says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. So, again, Paul finally gets to the place where we're going to start applying everything that he has said. There was a group of individuals that came in to the region of Galatia. And within these individuals that Paul had seen come out of bondage of sin and, and through the saving knowledge of Christ as Savior, and they started out well. They were doing a good job, but these individuals came in and interrupted it. Paul is encouraging them, guys, stand fast in the liberty. Stand fast. Hold your ground in what God has, has brought you out of. You weren't made righteous because you obeyed the law. You were made righteous because you trusted in Christ. Hold that ground. Stay there. God has set you free, not only from the bondage and the penalty of sin, but also from the fact that the sin was a schoolmaster driving you, leading you to Christ. What's that? The law was not given so that you can fully complete it, obey it, and, and, and be successful in doing everything that the law says obeying those 613 commands. No, no. The law was given to show you that you fall short of perfection, that you fall short of God's standard, those 613 commandments. No, 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 but you don't understand. I, I do a lot of them. Okay, well, here's my example. Let's say we were driving right here down Main Street, Main Street right here, and uh, I don't know, we were doing 65, and woo, we get lit up, lights behind us, siren, we get pulled over. And that police officer comes to your window and asks the question, and you got, right, right, 10 and 12, right, right, I mean, 10 and 2, here, hands on the steering wheel, and you're like, how you doing, officer, what's going on? Uh, license and registration, please, and you'd hand the proper documentation, and, and, then, and then he would say, um, do you know why I pulled you over? Because they always ask you that, and you're like, oh, I don't want to admit it, okay, uh, but do you know why I pulled you over? Uh, really, I... No idea, because here's my license and registration. I am a legal beagle. In fact, I have insurance. Here you go. Proof of that, okay? And then he says, um, well, you were doing 65 in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. I think it's 25 or 30, right? Whatever that speed limit is. And then you begin to say, no, no, I don't think you get it. See, I don't think you understand. See, I pay my taxes. I do, every year. No, for reals. Every year I pay my taxes. And I don't know if you know this, but I've never committed adultery. Now, I, I obey that commandment like to the T, to the fullest, never committed adultery. So I pay my taxes, and I've never committed adultery. And he says, 
what does that have to do with the fact that you were going 65 in a 30-mile-an-hour zone? Here's your ticket. Thank you very much. Have a wonderful day, right? So you can be very good and keep most of the law, but if you've broken one, the Bible says you're guilty. The Bible says that you're going to have to pay the penalty for your sins. And Jesus did that for us on the cross. He obeyed perfectly. And that substitutionary death and that righteousness is given to us as we believe and put our faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross. And so no longer, Paul is saying, stand fast in the liberty that God has given you. God has not saved you because you obeyed perfectly. God is not pleased with you because you're perfectly obeying now. That grace that God gave you is what God wants to continue to give you. Be careful not to put yourself back under the bondage of the law is what he's saying. So made us free and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage. Where have we heard that before? Paul and Peter would come to those who were in Jerusalem and Peter would share out of Acts chapter 15 verse 10. Now therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Why do you want them to be saved with a yoke? A yoke would be that instrument where you would place two animals. Usually a stronger, more mature animal would go in the leading side, and then you'd have the weaker one that would be yoked or connected to uh, each other, and they would do the work within the field. And so that leader one would take the younger one, Paul is, or Peter here, is, is, it's repeated as Peter's saying, but why would you put a yoke on the necks of the disciples? Why would you put them back under the law? Why would you tell them what, that they had to be circumcised? Why would you tell them that they had to obey the Sabbath? That's a yoke of the law. Why would we put themselves under that when we couldn't even do that? And you know we couldn't. I like what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30. He says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That, that Greek word easy is defined as means kind and gracious, for my yoke is kind and gracious. Yoke up with me. Let me lead you. Let me take you. Is it a difficult yoke? Is it an overwhelming yoke? Is it a burdensome yoke? No. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Don't go back under the law. Don't don't get out of the yoke of Christ and go back to the yoke of the law. That's a burdensome yoke. That's a heavy load. That's the weight of the world on your shoulders. Your salvation would be your responsibility for you to continue to maintain it. Okay, well, God saved me, but now I got to make sure I stay saved. No, no. Jesus is saying that's not how it works. It started with grace. It will continue with grace, and it's going to end with grace. Yoke up with me. My burden is easy. My load is light. Don't be burdened by religion. Don't be burdened by the rules, regulations, and rituals that religion wants to place back on top of you. Moving on now, verses 2 through 6. Galatians chapter 5, verses 2 through 6. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor 
to keep the whole law. You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. And again, what are we doing in this section of Scripture? We're starting to get back to the application of what he said. He says, you know what? I want to see faith working through love in your life. I don't want to see you come back down to the rules and the regulations of what Judaism was teaching. And so he's saying, if you become circumcised to please God, you've fallen from grace. Because you're going to take one tenet of the law and you're going to obey it to please God. And God is saying, no, I'm already pleased with you because of what my son did for you. I see you as perfect in Christ. I see you as righteous in Christ. And so, no, you're not obeying the law to please God. In fact, no, 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 no. Flow out of love. What you do, do it out of love. Do it out of a gratitude for God and what he's done for you as opposed for, to obeying the law and, and, and trying to win God's approval. You're already approved by God. You're already approved with God. He says you have fallen from grace in verse 4. And that idea of fallen from grace, many Christians think it's what well, you've lost your salvation. No, you've not lost your salvation. Falling from grace is not losing salvation. It's, it's falling under the umbrella of God's grace and going back to law. And it's like, why would you go back to works? Why would you do that? You've fallen from the simplicity that is found in Christ and the liberating thing that grace offers to a person. You put yourself back under bondage is what he's saying. In Luke chapter 7, verses 36 through 50, we read it in our time of responsive reading where you have Jesus come into the house of this woman or this man, Simon, and this woman comes and this woman is a known sinner. She is obviously a sinner. Everyone can see that she is a sinner and she loves on Jesus. She cries tears on his feet and takes her hair and wipes clean his feet. And then she takes an alabaster flask of fragrant oil, costly oil, and she anoints his feet, and she continues to wipe his feet. And this leader, Simon, in the community, Jesus, um, he tells Jesus, uh, or at least he's thinking, if Jesus were really a prophet from God and, I mean, he knows what he's supposed to know, then he would know that this woman who's touching him is a known sinner. Wouldn't he have a problem with that? And then he, Jesus gives him this nice little parable. Simon, two people owed this one guy money. One owed him this much and one owed him ten times as much. And he get, forgives both of them of their debt. Who, who do you think is going to be more grateful? Who do you think is going to be uh, more happy about that debt being forgiven? Well, obviously, the one that owed more is going to require more or, or, or be more appreciative, right? You've spoken well. That's true. And, and in the Greek, it, it reads, but neither was able to pay, so the creditor graciously forgave them both. That's a literal translation. Graciously forgave them both. I was thinking about Pastor Chuck Smith the other day. And Pastor Chuck Smith died of 
lung cancer. Lung cancer. A man dies of lung cancer who never a breath, a puff of a smoke of a cigarette ever touched his lips, and yet he dies of lung cancer. And in the 60s growing up, secondhand smoke was prevalent. And so how he incurred that, how he got that, is hard to understand. A cuss word never exited that man's mouth. A drop of alcohol never came into that man's tongue. But yet in junior high, as he was in his self-righteousness, trying to please God and appease God, he came to the place where he understood that he was a sinner in need of a savior. And upon giving his life to God, he was forever indebted to serve God with his life. He recognized that God had forgiven him for a tremendous amount of sin that he could never have in and of himself pay for. To whom much is forgiven, the Bible declares, much is expected. And do you know personally what you have been forgiven of? Don't tell me that you know it intellectually, but it will be proven in your life if you truly believe that you have been forgiven much. Because you will feel indebted to God for the rest of your life to show him, Lord, I just, I love you so much for you loving me so much. I just want to serve you. I just want to proclaim your goodness to others. I just want to see others saved. Lord, I want to be a conduit of your love. I want you to flow in me and through me. And again, that's what these last two chapters are going to reveal our response, not our responsibilities, but our response to God for the gracious act of salvation that he has given to us. When we trust Christ, we become spiritually rich. Ephesians 1.7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.18 says, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Colossians 2.3 says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Colossians 2.10, And you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. How rich we are in Christ. Grace, unmerited, undeserved, unearned favor. The acronym GRACE, G-R-A-C-E, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. Let's close out now verses 7 through 12. Paul writes, you ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind, but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. 
And so Paul starts out this last section and he says, you ran well. Who hindered you? Imagine you're running a race and you're in your lane and somebody cuts in front of you and you started out well, you were in your lane, you were doing what you were supposed to do and then this person that cuts in front of you begins to go off path and you begin to follow them. That's exactly what that word hindered means in the Greek. Who hindered you? Who who caused you to go in a different direction? What happened? You started out well. You were running your race. You were in your lane. And then somebody took you off the course. They took you off the path. And so for us as Christians, starting out in God's grace, we've got to continue in God's grace. We have to finish in God's grace. There are many within the scriptures who started well, and you study their lives, and they didn't end well. And the wonderful thing I love about our Lord is, no matter where we are, there's our starting point. We can start right there. Whatever was in the past, whatever we messed up with before, we could say, you know what, today's the, rest of the first day of the rest of my life. Lord, I can get right back on path with you. I can get right back on the course. I can get back in my lane and shine those people who are telling me gobbledygook. What the heck was I doing? I was following these people, right? Here's the surprising thing about the cults and these deviant religions. It's always what a man says. It's always what people say. It's never what the scripture says. If you and I just read the scriptures, we'd be fine. It's when we begin to read the opinions of people about the Bible that we begin to get off. Charles Taze Russell, 1800s, growing up in a Christian home. He looks at it and he's like, well, the church is apostate. The church is whack. The church is off. I know. I'm going to develop a system. And he was shunned. And so he developed his own system. Charles Taze Russell, founder and starter of Jehovah's Witnesses. And he begins a book, The Watchtower Magazine in Brooklyn, New York. And the, Watch, the Awake Magazine, The Watchtower Magazine. And it's what's in The Wake and the, the Watchtower Magazine that will skew. It'll take what the scripture says, and, but you need us to tell you what it means. Do I really? Do I not have the Holy Spirit that gave the very word of God in the inception? I have the Holy Spirit dwelling within me. I have God's word in my hand. I need God, and I need his word. Thank you very much. I don't need a man to tell me what the Bible really means. Same thing with Mormonism. You take the truths of the scriptures, and you have a man that comes in, and he gets a vision from God, and he has these golden tablets, and he has all of these places of this vision that he's seeing, but yet they've never been proven. They're just these, these lands, and it sounds like science fiction. Scientology, my wife and I were watching a documentary on Scientology. And you have this guy back in the 1950s come up, Ron L. Hubbard, L. Ron Hubbard, whatever his name is, right? Comes up with this thing, talking to his friend and says, Hey, man, I bet you I know how you can make a lot of money, man. Just create some religion. People buy into it, hook, line, and sinker. I bet you you can make some cheddar. And that's exactly what he sets out to do. Scientology is born and you have people led astray. Again, guys, we have the word of God. We began well. We want to continue to run well as we sit under the grace of God and his word. As he goes on in that section, he says a little leaven leavens the whole lump. Leaven is always a type of sin or a type of evil in the Bible. And many times we think of evil 
and evil doctrines is something that's going to take us away from God by leading us into these seedy sins, drugs and, and, and drunkenness and, and, and sexual perversion and all of these things. But Paul is saying your self-righteousness is a bad thing and it's a little leaven and it's going to leaven the whole lump. That you think you can continue to be saved in your own strength, in your own power, by obeying the law is leaven. It's evil. It's sin. you got to let God do that work supernaturally from the inside out. And then he goes on to say something that some commentators have had difficulty with, but he says in the last verse 12 that we read, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. What is Paul saying? I wish they would emasculate themselves. They're telling you to be circumcised. They're telling you to cut the foreskin of your private part. I wish they would take the knife, go all the way, and chop themselves off. And if you look at it metaphorically, what he's saying is, I wish they wouldn't be able to produce anymore. I wish this insidious doctrine that you have to live under legalism would be cut off and no fruit would be the byproduct of their lives. If they believe in it so strongly, take it all the way. Take it to its logical conclusion. They want you to obey the law. Hey, go further. Go the whole way. And so again, a little pretty visual that Paul gives us in that. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, starting at verse 12. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if anything, if in anything, you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Brethren, join in following my example and note those who so walk as you have us for a pattern. For as many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction, whose God is their belly and whose glory is in their shame who set their mind on earthly things, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, that it may be conformed to his glorious body, according to the working by which he is able even to subdue all things to himself. Paul is saying, I'm going to forget those things that lie behind, and I'm going to press forward. So wherever I'm at today, right now, I want to press forward. I want to move forward. I want to move in the grace of God. I want to move and be compelled by the love of God. In Acts chapter 20, Paul would come to the Ephesian elders in Ephesus. And he would call for, it kind of looks to me like a leadership meeting where all of these elders come and they meet in Ephesus. And over and over, they're getting prophetic words that Paul can't go to Rome because if he goes to Rome, he's going to be destroyed. He's going to be demolished. That One guy takes his belt off, Paul's own belt, and he ties his arms and he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, whoever owns this belt, it's going to be exactly like this. This person's going to be bound. And Paul writes in 
Acts chapter 20, verse 24. But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of grace of God. Paul was getting a lot of flack for sharing this message. Paul was receiving persecution from the Judaizers and from Rome. And he says, you know what? I don't care what happens to my life. I've got to declare this message of grace. I've got to continue doing what God has called me to do because his love compels me. It's my driving force. It's why I do what I do. God's grace is sufficient for every demand of life. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, tells us that we are saved by grace. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 and 10, tells us that we serve by grace. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, shows us that grace enables us to endure suffering. 2 um, 2 Timothy 2, 1, it is grace that strengthens us. 1 Peter 5, 10, our God is is the God of all grace. We can come to the throne of grace and find grace to help every need. Hebrews 4.16 shows us. As we read the Bible, which is the word of his grace, according to Acts 20.32, the spirit of grace, Hebrews 10.29, reveals to us how rich we are in Christ. John 1.16 says, and of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. How rich we are. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the message of the gospel. Lord, no man would be able to devise such an incredible plan that, Lord, you would be the one who justifies and you would be the one that is the justifier. Through your death on the cross and your resurrection, Lord, we would have life. And by faith, through this incredible thing of grace, we would come to a place, Lord, where we know you personally, where we can walk and talk with you all the days of our life. And Lord, I do find it interesting that beginning in grace, you would have us to continue in grace. And Father, you don't force us. You don't place these demands upon our lives that are overbearing or overwhelming. In fact, Lord, the Bible declares that your commandments are not burdensome as we simply walk by faith, trusting that you are going to grow us up in the things of God. Lord, we recognize that you are doing a work supernaturally from the inside out. And our response to that, Lord, is a desire to cooperate and participate with you. And so, Lord, I pray that that would be everybody's sentiment this morning. I pray that we would all be in this together, Lord, just responding to this incredible plan of love that you have for us. So thank you, Lord. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for salvation. Thank you for completely fulfilling the requirements of the standard of perfection that none of us in this room could ever do. We thank you for that, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.